Well, I want to start with a story this morning. A young couple moved into a new neighborhood. And the first morning after they moved into their new house, they were having breakfast when all of a sudden the wife, the young wife, noticed that the neighbor was hanging her wash out outside. And she looked and she said, hmm, wow, her laundry is really not very clean. She must not know how to wash properly. You know, maybe she needs some better laundry soap or something. The husband just looked on and remained silent. Well, this scene repeated itself several times over the next month when the neighbor would put, bring their wash outside and the, and the young wife would comment, hmm, the, wash, the laundry doesn't look very clean. She must not know how to wash properly. Perhaps her laundry detergent is, 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 is not, it's not adequate. And uh, all of a sudden, one morning, they got up and had breakfast, and she looked out the windows and said, oh my goodness, her laundry, it's clean. I wonder who taught her how to do that. The husband said very dryly, I got up early this morning, dear, and washed our windows. <laughs> Took a few of you just a second to catch that, but... Perception is not always reality. Sometimes our judgments of others are actually flawed. You know, none of us really like to think of ourselves or consider ourselves judgmental uh, persons. Pastor John Burke of uh, Gateway Church in Austin made the same assumption. He said, I'm not a judgmental person. But he was honest enough just to say, well, just in case I'm wrong... I think I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to keep track for a whole week of the judgments I make about other people. And here's what he discovered. And I'm quoting, quoting him. Judging others is fun. Judging others makes you feel good. And I'm not sure I've gone a single day this week without this sin. I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room, judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm moody, but of course I have good reason. Even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation for his bad breath. Now he goes on, this is still him. Some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No. But there's correction that values with mercy, and there's correction that devalues with judgment. He continues, I watch the news and condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or at least childish. I get in my car and I drive and find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw in a little condemnation on our Department of Public Safety for good measure. That's the, that's the highway patrol in Texas. Mom will, mom will know that. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? Stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long because... Look, people, it says 10 items or less, and I count more than than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And why can't you, why can't that teenage checker, what is she wearing, focus and work so we can get out of here? He continues, judging is our favorite pastime. 
if we're honest. But we're not. We're great at judging the world around us by standards we would highly resent being held to. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. End quote. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's what Pastor Burke has to say about judging. What did Jesus have to say about judging? In the Sermon on the Mount that we are examining this summer, we read Jesus' words. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at that speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye. And look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, we've repeatedly noted that the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his disciples that greater right, what that greater righteousness looks like, how kingdom righteousness is to work itself out in our everyday lives. In the first half of chapter 6, Jesus showed us what this righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees looks like in public religious life, in activities like prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. In the latter half of chapter 6, Jesus showed us what the greater righteousness of the kingdom looks like in our personal interior life, in matters like choices between materialism or spiritual reward, worry or trust in God, and choices between worldly or kingdom priorities. Today, in chapter 7, we begin a new section of the sermon where Jesus shows us what kingdom living looks like in our interpersonal relational life. As we just read, he starts by talking about judging. So what exactly did Jesus mean when he said, do not judge? Was he indicating we shouldn't have a judicial system? Did he mean that we're to stay out of each other's business within the church and within society and let everybody do their own thing? Did he mean that truth is relative and there's no absolute right or wrong? Did he mean that whatever standards or lack of standards people choose to live by are equally valid and, um, and should be, as, as is espoused by our postmodern culture. Well, one of the realities we have to be aware of when answering these questions is that Jesus sometimes used hyperbole or exaggeration in his teaching to make a point. For example, Jesus said, we read this last week, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Taken at face value, our response could be that we don't need to work, but should just expect groceries, new clothes, and rent or mortgage money to regularly just appear on our front porch or in the mailbox. However, we see in other places in the New Testament 
where godliness includes responsible, honest work in securing our own needs. For example, 2 Thessalonians 3, 9 to 12 says, When we were with you, this is Paul speaking, When we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. In Timothy 5, 8, we read, But if anyone does not provide for his own, that is his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. By comparing other parts of Scripture, we see that Jesus wasn't telling us not to work, but that our primary priority in life should be seeking his kingdom. We should trust God to provide what we need as we do our part to be responsible workers. Well, it's important that we keep this balancing act in mind as we examine Jesus' teachings. This doesn't lessen the radical nature of what Jesus taught, but it keeps us from misunderstanding and taking his teaching to an unintended extreme. So when it comes to his directive to do not judge, what did Jesus not mean? Jesus is not saying that truth is relative. He is not advocating no need to discern truth from error. In fact, he warns us to do just that in verses 15 to 23 of the same chapter. We are to evaluate all beliefs posed by others and reject them if found to be false. What's the standard for knowing if beliefs represent truth or error? How they line up with God's word. 1 John 4, 1-4 says that we are not to believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In other words, we are to evaluate everything that we hear from those claiming to speak for God within the church or from our culture and compare it to the plumb line of God's word. So not judging does not apply to discerning truth from error and rejecting the error. Not judging also does not mean refraining from calling something's right and something's wrong. In Isaiah 5.20, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know this, our society increasingly calls what God says is wrong, right. And what God says is right, wrong. We are commanded to reject the world's views because the world is diametrically opposed to God's ways. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. For the believer, the Bible is our authority for what is right and wrong. Why? Because it's God's revelation to us. It's his set of blueprints for our lives and for our world. In Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we read, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So not judging does not apply to discerning truth from error 
or from or to refraining from calling some things right and some things wrong. Not judging also does not mean we should fail to hold other believers accountable and to correct sinful behavior. Notice that Jesus did not prohibit seeking to remove the speck from our brother's eye. He told us to do that, but he cautioned against doing so if we have a log in our own eye. In Matthew 18, 5 to 7, Jesus tells us that if a fellow Christian is sinning against us, we are to go to him or her and bring it to their attention. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught up in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person. By the way, Paul is not talking here about correcting unbelievers. He's talking of the mutual accountability that should exist among Christ's followers within the church. You and I have a responsibility as Christ followers to hold one another accountable and challenge sinful behaviors. Sins like gossip, slander, spiritual laziness, forsaking assembling together, immorality, divisiveness, holding grudges, and Lack of godly submission to those in places of spiritual authority like our parents, our church leaders, and or our civic leaders. Sin damages the sinner and weakens the body of Christ. Holding one another accountable is not just the job of the pastors and the elders. It's the responsibility of every believer. Well, not judging does not apply to discerning truth from error. It doesn't apply to refraining from calling some things right and some things wrong or to holding other believers accountable and pointing out sinful behavior. Not judging also does not mean that all judging or sanctioning is wrong. This may be a new thought for some of us. Paul says that believers are to judge those who are inside the church. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, I am writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you know that we will judge angels not to mention ordinary matters? So if not judging does not mean refraining from discerning truth, And there, refraining from calling some things right and others wrong, refraining from addressing and correcting sinful behavior, or that all judging or sanctioning is wrong, what does it mean? Well, the Greek word krino, which is translated judge in this passage, has a broad range of meanings. It can mean ordinary discernment or evaluation. It can mean judicial litigation. It can mean bestowal of reward. It can mean pronouncement of guilt. And it can mean an absolute determination of someone's fate. It's the latter two of those senses that are meant here. The latter two of those meanings. Absolute judgment involves categorically pronouncing the guilt of another person as though this is the final word on the matter. Absolute judgment requires making myself and my opinions the definitive standard. It's making myself out to be the judge and jury on a matter in someone else's life. Making myself judge and jury for someone else in the church 
can look like this. Look at her up there on the worship team. She thinks she's really hot stuff. She acts like she's so into worship, but I know it's not real. It's just a show to impress others how spiritual she is. Or it could look like this. My parents really don't care about me. They just get on my case because they care about their image. They want me to get good grades so that our family will look good so that they can brag about me and my sister to others. Or it could look like this. No one in leadership ever thanked me for serving as an usher. Even after doing it for eight years, our church leaders are all the same. They just use people till they're burnt out and they don't care enough to even say thanks. Could look like this or sound like this. Can you believe it? Parading her new baby around the church after being born out of wedlock. I think all those tears she shed in front of her small group and our church leaders were just a show to avoid church discipline. When will our leaders ever make a public example out of those who choose to sin? Could sound like this. I know the choir director said he was sorry for being too gruff with me at choir practice, but he didn't really mean it. He was just saying it so he wouldn't lose face in in front of his peers. Or it could sound like this. Only two people in my small group ever expressed care for me when my father passed away. They talk a good talk, but their words don't translate into action. They're really uncaring people at heart. Might look like this. How can he still come to church after having had an affair? I know he supposedly repented, but church is not a place for people who can't obey Christ's commands. People like him give the rest of us a bad name. Might sound something like this. Our elders, they meddle way too much in the affairs of others. How dare they come to me and suggest that I shouldn't be criticizing my committee chairman. They have no idea how he treated me. Who do they think they are? Who do they think they are? They're just a bunch of holier than thou's. Or it might sound like this. Pastor Kent never responded to the question I emailed him. He acts like he cares about people, but he thinks he's too important or busy to respond to me. What's wrong with becoming jury and judge toward others like the examples I just gave you? The problem is this. There's two things. Number one, when I become jury and judge, I usurp God's rightful role. I seat myself upon God's throne. I choose to play God. He alone has the right to judge in this way. He alone can truly see someone's heart and rightly evaluate it. We often don't see clearly. We certainly um, uh, are not always aware of all the circumstances of someone else's background or their situation. The second problem with becoming jury and judge is that when I do that, I give evidence that I've forgotten the mercy and forgiveness that God has extended to me and that he continues to extend to me, a sinner. I have become like the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18, whom Jesus said was forgiven a massive debt by his master, but then refused to forgive the small debts owed him by others. In fact, the servant had his debtors thrown into prison. The servant became jury and judge toward his debtors. He forgot the mercy and grace shown to him. The result? 
was that his master judged him with the same judgment he used. He was thrown into prison forever because the debt was too big for him to pay back. Jesus says that if we become judge and jury, we will be judged by God with the exact same standards that we use to judge others. In fact, he tells us earlier in the sermon on in the sermon earlier in the sermon on the mount in the model prayer that if we fail to forgive others, our heavenly Father will not forgive us. We quite easily spot what we believe to be sins and shortcomings of others, but just like the unmerciful servant, we are often blind to the same or worse sins and shortcomings in our own lives. We easily have a double standard when it comes to judging others. Jesus exhorts us to first inspect our own lives to find the sins to which we are blind. Once we have repented of those sins, we are to help other followers spot and to remove their sins, always remembering and extending the same mercy, grace, and forgiveness that God has shown to us. In Matthew 7:12, Jesus sums up the spirit in which we are to interact with others when he says, "Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. We should treat others the way that we want to be treated. We should extend mercy in the way we wish to receive mercy. We should extend forgiveness in the way we wish to be forgiven. And we should correct others, yes, we should correct others in the way that we wish to be corrected. So what are we saying Jesus meant in this passage about judging? Let's let's review. Not judging doesn't mean not discerning truth and error and rejecting error. It doesn't mean waffling on what God tells us is right or wrong in his word. It doesn't mean that we should avoid addressing and correcting sinful behavior. And it doesn't mean that all judging or sanctioning is wrong, as we've already seen from God's word. Jesus does mean that we are not to become judge and jury toward others and that we are to remember the mercy and forgiveness shown to us by God and extend that same mercy and forgiveness to them. We are called to make godly judgments, rightfully living with other believers in mutual accountability without falling into the kind of unmerciful, unforgiving, and hypocritical judgmentalism described by Jesus. How do we do that? Remember, I like to ask questions. How do we do that? Well, let me very quickly here give you five helps. We're going to do this real fast. First, Remember and express gratitude for the undeserved mercy and grace God has shown to you. We've just reminded ourselves of that mercy and grace this morning as we took communion. God has not given you or me what we deserve. Instead, he extends mercy and forgiveness when we blow it, even when we choose to rebel. God calls us to extend that same undeserved mercy and grace to others. Second, Examine your own life regularly. Like King David, ask God to search your heart and see if there be any wicked way in you 
And ask God to lead you in the right, in the godly way. Three, confess your sins to God and to another mature brother or sister in Christ. Psalm 32.5 says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you, God, took away the guilt of my sin. We, we must confess our sins to God. He's the only one from whom we can obtain forgiveness. But listen to what James 5.16 says. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Confessing our sins restores our relationship with God and it rids us of a, of a hypocrisy. When I confess my sin to another brother, mature brother in Christ, I humble myself. God already knows the sin. It's not costing me anything. But when I, I have to tell somebody else, yeah, your pastor, your pastor sinned this past week. I humble myself before God. And as I humble myself, it just puts the welcome mat out for God. And God's able to, to renew and to uh, cleanse me and to make me uh, ready to be used by him again. Number four, remain open to correction and humble yourself, allowing others to speak into your life. One of the greatest attributes that you and I can attempt to cultivate in our life is teachability, a humility that allows others to speak to us. Proverbs 13, 18 says this, Poverty and disgrace come to those who ignore discipline, but the one who accepts correction will be honored. In Proverbs 15, 31 to 32, we read, One who listens to life-giving rebukes will be at home among the wise. Anyone who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever listens to correction acquires good sense. James 4 to 6 says, God resists the, the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves before God and before other believers, we experience God's grace. When we are proud, God's grace runs lean in our lives. Five, take seriously your responsibility to hold other Christ followers accountable when you spy sinful attitudes and behaviors in their lives. This can be a tough one, folks, in our modern-day society that's, that's so filled with individualism and, and personal rights. But listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17.3. He said, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Let me read that again. Listen, listen real carefully. Focus in with me right here. This is important. Jesus said, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Proverbs 27, 6 says, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy. If we really love others, we will speak the truth to them, even when it's uncomfortable. But we must do it in gentleness and with compassion, remembering the undeserved mercy and grace God has shown toward us. Our intent must be to see others restored, not vilified. Well, Jesus shows us in Matthew 7 how to live out kingdom life in community. He warns us to avoid either extreme, the extreme of becoming jury and judge, or the other extreme, alternatively, 
failing to exercise godly judgment and to live in mutual accountability within the church. When we avoid judgmentalism and engage in godly judgments, his kingdom comes among us. And the world sees an accurate picture of the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. We become a city on a hill that illuminates the dark world around us and points them to Jesus. Let's pray.